Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Suffering equals pain times resistance. That physician or nurse or respiratory therapist can remind themselves that the more we embrace our gratitude for the ability to help other people, the more resilient and ultimately happy we will be, even in the face of extremely trying and difficult circumstances. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. That was a quote from Dr. Greg Hammer, author of the new book, Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. Greg is a pediatric intensive care physician and pediatric anesthesiologist with a very interesting research focus in developmental pharmacology and immunology. He's widely published, frequently guest lectures, but this show is really about mindfulness to reduce or mitigate physician burnout. And if there ever was a time for our spidey senses to be tingling about physician burnout, it's now. So Andrew and I got a chance to break it all down with Greg, and we had a fascinating conversation that we hope you enjoy. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. I have a unique affinity for pediatric intensive care. On a personal note, my daughter uh, was diagnosed with a rare condition called Sandifer syndrome, which mirrored stroke, and she was in intensive care with all sorts of breathing issues. And I've worked in patient advocacy. I'm a cancer survivor. So pediatric cancer, of course, clearly a very difficult market to traffic in as a, as a doctor. But from that perspective out there, does working in that specific niche prepare you more to appreciate the value of burnout in the medical community? Great to be with you, Bat and Andrew. And Yes, I think anybody who works in intensive care, and also I do pediatric anesthesiology largely for a congenital heart program, those are areas where we deal with a lot of sick patients. And there are lots of patients that we take care of that have very complex congenital syndromes who have very poor prognosis, yet they may be in the hospital for lengthy periods of time. And of course, that's a perfect environment for burnout for people who are working long-term with with hopeless situations. So that would certainly be one driver. So yes, I think working in critical care, one has to accept death and accept the fact that we are sometimes rather powerless to really help the patient. And we have to remind ourselves that we didn't cause the patient's condition and we may not be able to cure it. But yes, I think those environments are especially ripe for burnout. The reason I led with that question is because it's often too easy to dismiss the fact that doctors are people too. You have 
family, you have children, you go through the same experiences, you are patients just as much as we are. And what must it be like to have to understand and build systems and manage other team members in the medical space on a psychological level, the trauma? And we're living in like the greatest shit show on earth for a specific niche of doctors right now in this country with COVID all around the world out there, post-traumatic stress. How do you attenuate resiliency and perseverance into this narrative? That's a very good question, Matt. First of all, I would say that just as a background, I think there are three categories that are representative of the drivers of burnout. And one of them is the culture of medicine. And as you inferred, our culture has been always the patient comes first. And we haven't done a very good job at attending to our own health. I think there's a bit of a shift now. I don't know what the long-term result of it will be, but there's at least some recognition now that we do need to take care of ourselves first. And that may be our prime directive is take care of ourselves so that we can take better care of our patients. If we don't do that and we we begin to suffer burnout, there are significant adverse consequences to our patients, among other things. So we do need to focus on ourselves. And that's the reason that I wrote this book. I would categorize the drivers for burnout, I think, which is what you were referencing, in basically three sort of slices of the pie, if you will. One of them is our culture, the culture of medicine. The second one is efficiencies of our practice, because there's been a lot of changes in medicine that have made our practice much more difficult and less efficient in some ways. We take a step forward, but there's unforeseen consequences. For example, the electronic medical record. The third area of import with respect to burnout is resilience. And that's really where my interest is primarily. How can we build resilience? And again, that's the reason that I wrote this book, Gain Without Pain. And the GAIN is uh, in caps and represents an acronym for gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. So that is the thrust of my book and my philosophy is that we need to embrace those four pillars of resilience. This is such a big topic and it's devastating to, I mean, Matt and I are in New York City and The number of sirens that we hear outside our door every night, uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, Matt, but it's, it's diminished a bit, but that still continues to be the only sound of traffic that we experience. And we know that connected to each one of those sirens is uh, not just a patient, but a whole team of healthcare providers who are risking their lives to deliver care to that individual. It's got to be deeply stressful to add to the pressure of trying to save a person's life, the risk that you're taking with your own life, the risk of infection, it's just unimaginable. When we think of these four pillars, how can a person who's attempting to stay awake for 48 hours apply them as they go through the work of attempting to deliver care to patients? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Andrew. I would say, again, going back to the acronym GAIN, first thing is, in general, I think we as healthcare providers can be and should be grateful that we're in this very privileged circumstance of having the training and expertise to take care of other people. There are two kinds of happiness, if you will. Uh, One of them is hedonic happiness, 
And hedonic happiness is not meant to be a pejorative term. It simply refers to that joy that comes from things that are centered around ourself, a promotion at work, an excellent meal, a great day at the beach, etc. The other kind of happiness is called eudaimonic happiness. And that really comes from service. That comes from helping other people. And eudaimonic happiness is enduring. It's a very stable form of quiet joy that we derive from the ability to do what we do. Whereas hedonic happiness has its ups and downs. I think that actually the, the area under the curve, if you will, for the hedonic form of happiness is matched by unhappiness. So we are happy about these things initially, and then that wears off. And then there are usually sort of negative balancing concerns that occur. But with regard to eudaimonic happiness and, and back to gratitude, I think that we as physicians and other healthcare providers should be very grateful for the privilege that we have to help take care of other people and the joy and happiness that comes from that. So I think that's the first principle and we need to be reminded of that. Uh, you know, I'm kind of a, a bit of a student of the history of medicine and I've read quite a bit before this pandemic about the flu pandemic of 1918. Uh, I had a relative who died in that pandemic and just imagine how much worse things were then compared to now. And where you are in Manhattan and the surrounding areas, of course, you know, it's a horror. But in general, for most of us, compared to the conditions 100 years ago during the influenza pandemic, things are so much better. We're able to, for example, communicate with each other as we're doing right now. And I'm actually seeing your faces on my screen and listening to you talk and sharing information. It's really such an important way to connect with people. So we do have a lot of things for which to be grateful. And I think in the healthcare profession in particular, one is the gratitude that emanates from the privilege of taking care of other people. So we do have to remind ourselves of that. And certainly, especially in this time, for those who are on the front lines in areas where the pandemic is raging, there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice and perhaps anxiety. But I think in the big picture, um, gratitude is essential. And then, you know, we can talk about the other components of gain, but in the book, for example, I emphasize a, a three-minute gain meditation in the morning, just a very brief meditation that we can all do. We can all carve out three minutes. And then this serves as the basis of a practice of gain where we can embrace considerations of gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment as applicable during our day. So I think that's really the core of building resilience. And I, I think that's something that people in and out of healthcare can embrace. Greg, let me ask you a question following up on that, because I, f I have many friends that are MD-PhDs, they're surgeons, they're epidemiologists, they're triaging at Columbia right now, patients, uh, people I've known for 20, 30 years since high school and college, and they were not prepared. And how can you be prepared for almost a mobile armored surgical hospital level of psychological engagement? Do you feel like this pandemic in terms of primary care and urgent care is going to reframe medical school training? That's another good question. I, I don't know whether it will reframe it. I think it will 
add a new category of training, and that is, you know, preparedness for this sort of horrific occurrence. So, you know, those of us who deal with trauma and, uh, I mean, physical trauma to patients who deal with life and death situations every day at work, I think are somewhat well prepared for this, even though there's no way to be completely well prepared, especially if you're in the middle of the hotbed like those in, in New York. But this will, I think, definitely affect medical training and will be an additional area of teaching and education in medical school and, and thereafter during residency and fellowship. Absolutely. I think this pandemic is going to have widespread, relatively enduring effects on our culture, including the culture of, of training in medicine. Yeah, there's only a certain level of elasticity to the human condition. Having worked in pediatric cancer advocacy for so long, we worked with nursing all the time. And these nurses go in and they know these kids are going to die and they watch these children die every single day. And it takes, the, especially if they have their own children of the same age, the psychosocial impact of that. And that, again, as horrible as that is, that's been unknown when you enter nursing and you choose to enter that nursing profession. We're living in an age now with this pandemic that people are being forced into a level of emotional elasticity that they just were not prepared for. And how might you see the applicability of your gain process adapting into this new role? I'm so grateful for those nurses and others that work in oncology. I, I interact with our oncology services on a regular basis. I think uh, I can tell you my own experience is that when I became very interested in working in critical care, I decided that I was going to be dealing with a lot of hopeless patients and death and dying and decided really to take that head on. In other words, really contemplate on a regular basis what it means to be working with people who are dying. And one really needs to adopt and embrace the notion that we can't cure everybody and all we can do is apply our skills our compassion, our connection to other people as best as we can to try to make things a little bit better for the patient and their family. That actually is what the A in GAIN is all about. That's acceptance. So just as the serenity prayer would have it, we hope to have the intelligence to discern between that we can change and that we cannot change. And for that we cannot change, we must open our hearts and let that pain and suffering in, sit with it, and accept it. Trying to resist it or suppress it, not think about it, will only actually increase the suffering that we experience. I have a, we like equations in, uh, in medicine, and I have a, an equation in my book, which is that suffering equals pain times resistance. So the pain is there. I think the pain of dealing with patients who are dying, whether it's from cancer or whatever other process, is always there. However, if we resist it, our suffering will increase. On the converse side, if we open our hearts and learn to gradually accept it, our suffering will be diminished. And I think that is uh, an essential part of our resilience, and, and that's the A in gain, which is acceptance. So I think all of us who work in fields where we have a significant 
percentage of our practice represented by patients who have a poor prognosis and, and some who are dying, really have to focus our attention inward and open our hearts to the pain and suffering around us and do our best to accept it and realize that we didn't cause it and we can't always cure it. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So thinking about applying gain to the actual day of a healthcare worker, and let's apply it to a healthcare worker in the current crisis. Let's imagine a person, uh, a doctor, who's currently not living with her family because she doesn't want to risk in spreading the infection to them, is staying in some other location, maybe a hotel room close to the hospital, who gets up in the morning and heads in and is uh, faced with an overflowing ER. If you can imagine that and put yourself in that person's position, how can the gain process be applied to improve the way in which she deals with what she encounters throughout that day? Sure, good question, Andrew. Again, uh, going back to the practice, if you will, of gain, the way to deal with that is on her way to work, and even at the hospital, to bring oneself back to these pillars, these principles. That physician or nurse or respiratory therapist or unit clerk can remind themselves that they're in a privileged position to help other people, and, and that is one of the bases of eudaimonic happiness. So the more we embrace our gratitude for the ability to help other people, the more resilient and ultimately happy we will be, even in the face of extremely trying and difficult circumstances. That healthcare worker can also focus on acceptance. Again, he or she did not cause this awful disease, did not cause these awful circumstances, and can't fix all of the elements of the suffering on the part of their patients. So we just need to remind ourselves that we didn't cause this situation and we can't necessarily cure it. The I in gain is intention. And we need to remind ourselves that through purposefulness in 
directing our thoughts, we can rewire our brains. This may be getting a bit far afield from your original question, but the fact is that we all have brain circuitry uh, that is complex, of course. One aspect of our circuitry is we have a negativity bias. So we tend to dwell on the negative. We tend to remember things that are negative, painful, and forget all the good things. So for example, when that healthcare worker goes home at night, they can focus on the patient who died in the emergency room or in the intensive care unit for which they were, whom they were taken care of. And that's okay, but they should also redirect their thought processes to all of the positive things that happened during that day, because undoubtedly there are good things happening. There are circumstances by virtue of which patients are being helped in part related to this healthcare worker's efforts and, and knowledge and training and expertise. There's a really wonderful example of how we can use our intention to rewire our brains. And this applies to everybody, not just to healthcare workers. There's a ongoing study at Duke University called Three Good Things. I don't know if either of you have heard of that, but basically it's simply a practice of embracing three good things that happen during the day as we prepare to go to bed at night. Our usual negativity bias has us thinking of negative things that happen during the day. Oh, I wish I'd have done that. I regret this. I'm ashamed of that. In fact, just thinking of three good things that happen during the day as we prepare to go to sleep at night has been proven to improve our sleep and improve our happiness. Those that participate in the three good things study take a quality of life survey at a baseline and then during the practice of three good things and thereafter. And we know therefore from the data from Duke that this simple practice, which takes no time at all of intention, if you will, of thinking of three good things, redirecting our thoughts to three positive things that happen during the day, make us happier. So again, I think that's another essential tool, the eye and gain or intention is redirecting our thoughts to positive things and also being present. Because of our negativity bias, we tend to dwell in the past and the future in ways that are maladaptive. So for example, if we wanna consider thoughts of the past, we often get stuck and obsessed with feelings and thoughts of shame and regret. Now it's adaptive to think of wonderful things that happened in the past and how we can embrace our good memories. And we also have to learn from our mistakes. So to some extent, we should consider the mistakes that we have made and how we can do better. Those are adaptive considerations of the past. However, we can all relate to that we tend to go way beyond that and obsess on things for which we feel ashamed or regret. The same thing for the future. It's, it's important to look forward to happy times ahead with family and so on when this pandemic is largely over, for example. And also we have to plan to put food on the table. So those are adaptive thoughts of the future. However, especially now, we do get stuck in obsessing over catastrophic thoughts of the future and, and that breeds fear and anxiety. Again, it's our negativity bias coming into play. So we need to be mindful of those thoughts and when we're having maladaptive, obsessive thoughts about the past and the future, we can use our intention to redirect those thoughts to something more pragmatic and something more positive.
my negative bias is inversely proportional to my being Jewish, living in Brooklyn, and being a New Yorker. So I have to live <laughs> with that congenital disorder to start. But in all seriousness, I really did want to touch on a couple of things. Number one is that it's often very difficult to recognize your own burnout because you're so passionate about what you do as a medical provider. It is euphoric, as I've heard from many of my friends who are themselves oncologists or rheumatologists or hematologists. They love what they do. They're passionate about this. And they understand, as you pointed out, the risk and reward of having to go through personal trauma, watching people die, watching people be sick, but maintaining a balance of the positivity that they do accomplish writ large at balance of what they experience in their profession. Where are you in the spectrum of helping people first start identifying, are they burning out? What are the signs of burning out? And what are the support structures that exist in the healthcare system, if at all? Are they biased against clinical centers, academic centers, rural centers that help those human beings stay their best selves to do their best job? Uh, first of all, I, you, the first part of your question, Matthew, had to do with self-recognition of signs of burnout. We can all recognize, whether we're in healthcare or otherwise, our diminishing patience over time. So when we're feeling frustrated and ultimately burnt out, we become more easily aggravated, more easily upset uh, as time goes by. So, you know, for example, uh, one of your physician friends, Matthew, may go home at the end of a usual day feeling exhausted, but generally positive about what transpired during the day. And at some future time, that same person may be exhausted and frustrated earlier and earlier in the day. So the uh, exhaustion they normally felt at six o'clock in the evening, they're now feeling at three o'clock in the afternoon or at 1.30 in the afternoon. So we can all recognize that our patience wears thin. It has to do with how we respond to people around us. And so that's one of the signs of burnout is, is impatience and exhaustion. Another thing that happens when we're experiencing burnout is we tend to depersonalize others and ourselves. So we, we judge. We may have a patient. I may go into a patient's room in the intensive care unit and I may smell cigarette smoke on a family member's sweater. And under my best circumstances, I'm non-judgmental about that. However, when I'm feeling somewhat exhausted and frustrated and a bit burnt out, I'm more quick to judge. I might say, well, no wonder the child is on a ventilator. They've got all this secondhand smoke. And, uh, you know, this is not a good parent. So you find yourself judging others more readily. So these are some of the signs of burnout that we can detect in ourselves. And we're not necessarily identifying those things as burnout. But I think if we reflect at the end of the day on, on how the day went and how we're responding to our circumstances, these are things that we might notice. And so once one starts to recognize that one might be heading toward burnout, is there something that, that that individual can do in order to address, in order to tackle this burnout in the moment? Yeah, so I think part of Matthew's question, I think, also had to do with the culture of medicine. And is it contributory to burnout? And so, yes, I think the culture of medicine has contributed to burnout because, again, it's 
patient always comes first. We sometimes put self-care much lower down on our list of priorities. The culture of medicine has sort of included the expectation that we can work all night and then continue to work the next day. We have this limitless physical reservoir and mental reservoir, which of course we don't have. So I think the culture of medicine is is contributed in some ways to to burnout. There are several drivers there within that culture. So when we're feeling this way, I think we need to have a graded response. My book and my suggestion to people is to first go back to these principles of gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. And those, I think, again, are the four pillars of resilience and happiness. So I think a brief contemplative meditation in the morning and perhaps in the evening can be very brief, three or four minutes, but sit in a quiet place, close one's eyes, be comfortable, get in touch with our breath, slow it down. That in and of itself decreases the adrenaline in our body, the the stress response, if you will. Our heart rate slows down, our blood pressure decreases in a favorable manner. And then just go through sequentially these four principles. Um, Contemplate your gratitude. We all have much for which to be grateful. Things could definitely be worse than they are. Uh, So I would, you know, recommend focusing on that and then going to acceptance, intention, as we've discussed a bit, and then finally non-judgment. And non-judgment is not just accepting. Non-judgment is recognizing that things don't have to be categorized as good or bad, better or worse. We don't have to judge the world. We can just take the world as it is with what might be considered benevolent indifference. We don't have to categorize things in ways that render them good or bad. And more importantly is self-judgment, which is something that we in the healthcare profession, and I think others not in the healthcare profession in many cases are especially adept at judging ourselves. And with our negativity bias, we tend to hold on to the adverse elements of self-judgment and judge ourselves very harshly. So to me, this is really the cure for burnout. I won't say it cures burnout completely, but in the arena of resilience and personal resilience, these are essential elements. We still need to have a change in the culture of medicine, and we need to consider the elements of practice efficiency and those things that keep us in the hospital for an extra hour or two because of a variety of inefficiencies. But we can't necessarily change those things. So focusing on our own personal resilience, I think, is key. I have my own interesting equation to share with you, which is that judgment times empathy equals schadenfreude. And there's a certain value to enjoying that in in small, limited doses, maybe with a glass of bourbon. But I digress because I really wanted to get to, you wrote an article, The Five Ways for Leaders to Tackle a Growing Problem. So this isn't specifically about the one doctor or the one nurse or the one social worker or whoever that is. The hospital system, the leadership, the people that are responsible for the team, the wellness, the functioning, your bullets were understanding burnout at your hospital minimizing burnout and trying to maximize engagement, promoting self-care and resilience, talking often across disciplines and specialties, and recognizing and rewarding those within your team. So amongst those five, and we'll reference that link in the description in the podcast for everyone that listens to it, but if you could just briefly comment 
as if you're speaking to hospital leaders and administration who do listen to the show, what does it mean to recognize and reward team members? And how do you identify against the spectrum of improvement in burnout? Sure. Well, again, culture of medicine, which is partially or even largely determined by our leadership, there are important drivers of burnout and and remedies for burnout in that arena. So for example, the leadership can make sure that they send the message to everybody in their department or their hospital or their medical school that it's perfectly okay to get help and they can make that help readily available. So anybody who needs to speak with a mental health worker can do so anonymously and they should be encouraged to do that. That should be destigmatized because in medicine, the culture has been the patient comes first, self-care is further down on the list. I think there's been a lot of shame and, and negativity associated with getting psychological help. So that's one thing that can be implemented by hospital leadership and clinic leadership to help bend the curve with respect to burnout. There are other culture aspects. You talked about recognition for those who are performing at a high level or going above the call of duty. And we had a pilot study at Stanford and and there's an ongoing program that rewards people who are extra good citizens. They'll, They'll cover for a colleague who has to get home for childcare or cover for a colleague who's ill, take their call, work extra over and above what they were normally expected to do. And what Stanford has done is implement a program where credits are assigned for those things. And you can use those credits to, you know, have somebody clean your house or provide daycare for you or for your children. So there there are some interesting and innovative ways that we can recognize and reward people who go above the call of duty. There are other elements of the culture that can change and in some places are changing and they have to do with just emphasizing the teamwork required to get the job done. And, you know, really this comes from leadership, not only in medicine, but outside of medicine. I think people can uh, relate to that. If, if even big companies like Google and Amazon and Apple, it, it really comes from the leadership that this culture within the company is created and maintained. So how do we want to treat our workers? Do we want to provide them with you know, resources so that they're on lunch break, they have a way that can do some exercise, maybe there's a yoga class, we provide them healthy food without charge, so there are a lot of cultural elements that the leadership can establish. And, you know, I think to some extent that's beginning to happen in medicine, but I think it's going to be a very gradual process. Greg Hammer is the author of Gain Without Pain, the happiness handbook for healthcare professionals, currently on pre-order for ebook on Amazon and wherever books are sold starting May 15th. Greg, thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you back. This is a really important mental health narrative that spans so many different vast cockles, I just use the word cockles, of the healthcare system. Oh, it's a pleasure joining you and Andrew, Matthew, and feel free to call on me anytime. I'd be, I'd be delighted to join you again. All right. Take care. Stay safe, my friend. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. Hammer. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. 
Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.